doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what the scar. It doesn't matter what the sin. It doesn't matter how you fell. senior preaching pastor, which I have never been and will never be, 
We wouldn't have a big pulpit like this. I want to be out where I can see you folks. So uh, hopefully I don't trip, but I'm going to stand right here and move around a little bit, okay? And you pray that I don't trip. If I do, I know you'll take care of me. <clears throat> now, God spoke to me. Most of you got the email announcing the topic. I am not a closet charismatic. This is not my coming out day to day, okay? But I will say uh, there's a great deal in the charismatic movement that I could profit by in terms of energy and uh, warmth and all of that kind of thing. And I have friends who are charismatics and I love them and they put up with me. So that's a pretty good combination. God spoke to me. Why would I put a title like this on a sermon? Simply because he did. Simple as that. I am on a board of directors and this uh, board has a, an annual uh, strategic planning gathering, retreat every year, two days in length. And about a month ago, I got a book about this thick, 250 pages. Read this book in preparation for our retreat. So it sat on the shelf for a little bit and a little bit longer. And then a week ago Thursday night, I said, Van, you better get with this. And I pulled it down and I started to read. It's a book by Dr. Ruth Barton called Pursuing God's Will. And the first chapter is uh, a recitation, elaboration, application of John chapter 9. That's our sermon text today, John chapter 9. And I read the first few paragraphs and I said to myself, hmm, this is important for our church. I read the next few paragraphs and pretty soon God said to me, this is something you ought to share. And I read a few more paragraphs and I said, okay, my message for today has already been prepared. It's sitting right here in the back of my notebook. Maybe someday I'll get to preach it. And God said, hey, your message for this Sunday is John chapter 9. So I'm taking the outline uh, by Dr. Barton, and you'll see as I pursue it just how it spoke to me and how I hope it speaks to you as well. John chapter 9 is the story of Jesus healing the blind man, the one who was blind from birth. You recall he dabbled around some mud and put the mud on the blind man's eyes and the man was healed. It took 41 verses of that chapter to tell the story, which says to me, God felt that was pretty important to take a whole chapter to describe one event in the life of Jesus. So that also made me sit up and, and take notice. Most of the time when we read that chapter, we focus on the blind man and we focus on the healing. Marvelous, wonderful healing. Here's a man that was born blind from, he was blind from the very day he was born, his whole life. He probably was uh, at least in his 20s, uh, maybe older than that. When Glenn reads the passage, a first passage in just a few minutes, note, first of all, 
in that passage that nobody brought this blind man to Jesus. Some of the other healings, they brought someone to Jesus and then Jesus responded. Note when Glenn reads this that uh, nobody brought this man. But here's a man that these folks had seen for years and years and years. Jesus was coming into the area. You would think they would have brought him to Jesus because his reputation had already uh, come across all of Palestine that he healed people. But they didn't. They didn't bring this blind man to Jesus. Jesus initiated everything that took place in this chapter. He knew that he was going to heal this man long before uh, Jesus ever arrived there. He had a lesson for these people, and the blind man was the beneficiary of his lesson. So, you've just heard a music message about healing. Did you hear the words? Did the words touch your heart? Did they penetrate? It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you've been. Somewhere along the way, there is healing for your life today. There's a river that flows from the fountain of God. There's healing in Jesus' name. The blind man experienced healing, physical healing. We aren't blind, but I have a hunch all of us need to experience healing of one kind or another. And Jesus is the one who delivers healing. Jesus sought out this blind man to bring healing to him that day. As we go through the story, I want you to note that it wasn't just the man's vision that changed. He changed from a weak, dependent person, a beggar, depending upon everybody else, to a person who was full of internal power internal strength, even to the point where he could take up and stand up to the Pharisees, the most important men of the day. He had a revolution that took place in his life in a very short period of time. I'm not going to focus on the blind man today. I'm going to focus on the three groups who surrounded this blind man. There are three categories of people <clears throat> involved in this encounter each of whom responded to this miracle in a different way. Only the blind man came out right. We can learn from the misguided responses of these three groups of people because I believe those responses have a direct application to, our, to us as a church. So let's get started. There's an outline in your bulletin. I put some structure in there so you'll know where I'm going. The first group of people were the disciples. The disciples were asking the wrong question. Listen to Glenn Bauer as he reads John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. He saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. 
After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means scent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. You heard it. The disciples made an incorrect assumption. All they could think of was that this blindness was caused by sin. And they struggled, okay, whose sin was it? That the parents sinned? They're being penalized by having a child that's blind? Or was somehow, was it the individual's sin? Hard to understand how that could be with a, a baby who really doesn't have the occasion yet to sin. And Jesus said flat out, you're wrong. You're wrong. You would expect that those disciples who were the closest to Jesus uh, would have the keenest spiritual discernment, but they didn't. They had seen Jesus do other healings. They now had the opportunity to witness a work of God in their midst, and yet they asked Jesus the wrong question based upon the wrong assumptions. They turned this man's problem into a theological discussion. It's as if they ignored the man and his current condition and turned it into some type of academic exercise. They showed no love, no concern for the man's situation or his well-being. They hadn't even brought him to Jesus, the healer. They just wanted to deal with this theological conundrum that they were faced with. The correct question that they should have asked Jesus should have been, Jesus, will you heal this man? You're his only hope. But they didn't. So Jesus corrected them. He told them that God had a purpose in this man's blindness that goes beyond human behavior. He then proceeded to restore this man's sight. As we struggle with the future of our church, we need to make sure we're not asking the wrong questions. We need to make sure we're not asking the wrong questions. It's quite appropriate that we ask, what has caused our decline? But even if we could answer that accurately, the action then simply isn't to try to undo the causes that have caused the decline and then expect a turnaround. And it's quite likely that we can't even answer that question because you see, we're all too personally invested in the things that we've been doing. And for us to identify them as being wrong, inappropriate or unnecessary, simply won't happen. We will not have the perspective that allows us to adequately analyze what has taken place in times past in an appropriate way. Do you hear me? Why it's going to be difficult simply to look back and say, okay, we did this wrong, and then fix that, and everything's going to be fine. It won't be, because we're all the same group that was here previously, uh, and we don't change that much. It's difficult. Not because we don't want to, but we simply don't have the understanding and the perception to adequately deal with those things. Jesus identified the error in the disciples' question, and then he went on to accomplish his purposes through the blind man. In essence, he said, I'm going to carry out my purpose for this man going forward, 
The past is of little consequence. Do you see maybe a little application here? Maybe? Okay. Stay with me. You've you got to figure out why I'm hammering on this passage. Looking at our church, fixing the past won't guarantee the future. Restoring the glory days of the past only positions us to be what we used to be. God isn't interested in that. God wants to position us to carry out the future that he desires for us, not just to replicate the past. So let's make sure we're asking the right questions. The disciples didn't, but there's no reason why you have to fall into that trap. The real question that we need to ask and answer is, what does God want us to become in order to carry out his purposes for Lakeside in the future? You'll need a huge amount of courage when that answer becomes clear. Next group, the neighbors, stuck in the old ways. Glenn is going to read verses 8 through 12 of chapter 9, Gospel of John, for us. Was that the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. The neighbors knew the blind man. They'd watched him for years. Some probably knew him from birth shared the parents' grief when the blindness became obvious. They knew that there was no cure for blindness. Their filters really didn't allow for anything other than that he would continue to be blind for the rest of his life. When they saw this man come home from the pool of Siloam, obviously with vision, this didn't make any sense to them. Isn't this the blind beggar? I think it is. No, it couldn't be. This man can see. He only looks like the beggar. When the beggar heard all of this, he yelled out in verse 9, It's me! I'm the man! Then explain to us how your eyes were opened. I'll tell you. This man called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes and then me... He told me to go wash it off, and I could see. Okay, tell us this then. Where is this man? I don't know. This whole thing would be humorous if it wasn't so sad. Just back and forth. Unwillingness to confront the reality that was right in front of them. The neighbors were stuck in a reality that said, if you're blind, you're going to stay blind. They were operating under an old paradigm. There was no room for a new one. They could only see what they expected to see. They could only see what they expected to see. Are you with me? See where I'm going with that? If you don't, I'll tell you. Okay. If we as a church only see what we've always seen, if we only do what we have always done, 
there is no room for anything that doesn't align with what we have seen ourselves to be, then we don't allow God to do anything in our midst that falls outside of that. It's a little bit arrogant to say that we see things just the way that God does. New ways for this church are going to be painful if we look at them through our old eyes. But if we look at them through God's eyes, then they're going to be exciting. Don't you think it makes more sense to ask ourselves to follow God's ways than to ask God to follow our old ways? We must avoid being stuck in the old ways. The Pharisees, third group, half the chapter is given to the Pharisees. They were preserving the system at all costs. Glenn will read for us verses 13 through 23 at this time. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So now we have the neighbors. They're frustrated, they're confused by this healing. So they do the only thing they know what to do. They call in the wisest people of the land, the Pharisees. And they told them the story. And uh, then the man told the Pharisee his story about the mud and the washing. And that was fine until the Pharisees heard that it took place on the Sabbath. Then everything changed. The whole issue wasn't the blind being healed. The whole issue was it took place on the Sabbath. The issue became the law because the law said that's something you couldn't do on the Sabbath. Only a sinner could do such a thing on the Sabbath, so this could not have been done by a holy man at all. So they called in the man's parents. They interrogated them. What took place with your son? The parents' answer was simply that they knew he was blind, but now he can see. When the Pharisees asked how this could be, their only answer was, he's an adult, go ask him. 
You see, they were afraid of the Pharisees. They were afraid that if they acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah, that Jesus did the healing, that he did it on the Sabbath, that they'd be put out of the synagogue. They were afraid the Pharisees were committed to preserving the system at all costs. Glenn, chapter 9, verses 24 through 34, please. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So the Pharisees interrogated the beggar again. <clears throat> the beggar repeated his story again. The Pharisees rejected it again. The issue wasn't that a miracle had taken place. The issue was that it took place on the Sabbath and God's law simply wouldn't permit that. Just wouldn't permit that. Couldn't be. The law declared then that Jesus must be a sinner because the law must be preserved at all costs. So they banned the beggar from the synagogue their priority was not to honor a miracle of God, but to preserve the system. How does this apply to Lakeside Community Presbyterian Church? Well, the church works under a system. It's a system operated locally by the San Diego Presbytery. As you discern God's path forward for this church, you may rub up against a system that proves to be increasingly difficult. The new gracious dismissal policy of this presbytery is one example. You want to leave our denomination for another? Sure. Just give us everything you own. The denomination's permission to allow its clergy to conduct a gay marriage presents another difficulty. One church in our denomination in Miami, Florida has a ruling elder, term otherwise known as pastor, who identifies as a non-binary person, neither male nor female. This elder, Villamarie Clintron Oliveri, was elected as the co-moderator of PCUSA, top ruling body uh, in our denomination, the headship of the denomination. So, you may come to a place 
where you're forced to make difficult decisions regarding the degree to which you preserve a religious system, as was the focus of the Pharisees, rather than align with the work that God has for you in Lakeside. Systems are fine as long as they serve the right purpose and they're led by the right people. Don't put aside the system. Just make sure that God is in charge, the scripture is in charge, and the system supports that rather than the other way around. So those are the three groups that the beggar had around him during the course of this little event, each of which were composed of people, presumably, that loved the Lord, wanted to serve God, but each of them missed the boat. Each of them missed something very important. What about the beggar? He's the only one that comes out clean in this whole thing. If you look at the verses, if you have your Bible open, look at verse 11. In verse 11, the, be the beggar calls Jesus a man. Then go down to verse 17. The beggar calls Jesus a prophet. Then go down to verse 33. He calls Jesus a man of God. Then in verse 35, Jesus declares himself to be the son of man and in verse 38, the beggar declares that he believes in Jesus and he worships him. What a change in this man over just this short period of time from someone that really had no relationship with Jesus as a Messiah to someone who claimed total obedience. And in the passage that we have not yet read and won't be reading, he puts the Pharisees to the test and they fail. <clears throat> God has a vision and a direction for, for this church. It won't become clear overnight. Took a while in the beggar's experience. It will come in stages, but if you're listening to God, it will come. God is not a God of confusion. He already has a plan for this church. He'll reveal it as you open yourself to it and commit yourselves to follow his plan for Lakeside Community Presbyterian Church in Lakeside, California. What is my prayer for this church? It's sixfold. I pray that this church will learn from the people who surrounded the blind beggar, that you'll not ask the wrong questions and end up on a journey not under the direction of the master, that you'll not allow the old but good things in the past and the present to divert you from a new journey that God has planned for you in his compassion for the people of Lakeside, that you'll not become captive to a system that puts man's religious practice above Jesus' direction. That's my first prayer. Secondly, I pray that you will seek and receive a clear vision, clear direction from God, and commit yourselves to it with everyone in the boat rowing to God's cadence. It's going to take all of you, not just a dedicated few. Thirdly, I pray that this new vision will be fleshed out in a manner that is tangible, observable, measurable, achievable, motivating, not just a vision described in some elusive dream. Fourthly, 
I pray that this vision will be focused primarily, will be focused on the community in which God has placed you, right here. I pray that five years from now, you'll be able to look back as a church and say, my, oh my, what has God done through us? Turning the corner was rough, but it was worth it. Fifthly, I pray that over the next several months, your vision will be sufficiently clarified that you can search out and secure a new pastor who fits who you are and where you're going rather than a pastor who comes with his own agenda. And sixthly, lastly, I pray that you follow the leadership of your interim pastor, Randy Yenter, as he seeks to help you shape your future and prepare you for your next pastor. Randy is a wise man. Capture that wisdom for God's glory. Heavenly Father, there isn't much that I can pray to you right now because I've just verbalized six prayers. And those are my prayers uh, for this church going forward. I pray that you will give the leadership and all of the members and friends of this church courage as you take this church through the rough waters into a journey that will give you glory and hope and give you everything that you desire from this body. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you put up with the misperceptions. Thank you that when we don't always see things the way we should, that you're there, you're the healer, you're the comforter. You're the one that deals with us in our present weaknesses. You are the one that takes our lives as they are and begins to make them the way they should be, personally and as a church. So I thank you, Father, for the privilege of this church serving you in this community. Would you touch this congregation in every respect that it might continue to bring you glory. In the name of Jesus, amen.